It was Father's Day last <coughs> weekend, uh, Roger. Yep. Did you hear any good dad jokes? Uh, do you know what really gets on my nerves? I uh, know. Myelin. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 54 of the Obzangani Crick Gear Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back. Long time uh, since the last episode, apologies for that. So I'm back with Graham to do the next um, instalment in um, neurological deficits or neurological injuries after childbirth. Um, so I thought I'd sort of start this off by just sort of... Uh, positing a um, hypothetical case. So imagine, uh, Graham, that you're the DA and you, re- you receive a phone call from a midwife on the postnatal ward. She's looking after a 29-year-old woman with uh, gestational diabetes and a BMI of 39 who had a difficult instrumental delivery in theatre under epidural um, the night before. And she's now complaining that her left leg is numb and it's not working properly. Uh, inverted commas, which you can see pretty easily on a podcast. <laughs> So uh, it's a fairly familiar sounding consult, isn't it? I mean, it's not unusual to get yeah, something like that. Very common, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so postpartum neurological injuries are not that rare, are they? So No, not at all. I think, uh, I mean, I always quote when I'm talking to patients that uh, some form of postpartum neurological injury after a regional anaesthetic or analgesia is about one in a thousand. Yep, and uh, transient symptoms are probably more well, transient when I say transient so symptoms lasting 24 hours or less are probably more common than that and they may well be residual local anaesthetic effects or other effects associated with um, labour yeah so that's right so actually um, the main I'm going to put this on the blog so the main paper that we're going to sort of refer to uh when we're discussing this topic is one uh, by a, an anesthesiologist, Cynthia Wong, called Neurologic Deficits in Labour Analgesia. And she quotes that um, the incidence of, uh, of some sort of neurological deficit, um, we'll talk about what that, what that actually means in a minute, uh, uh, in some papers is sort of 0.5 to 1%. And uh, so that's like one in 200, one in 100 people or women. Um, and the huge or the vast majority of these are not directly attributable to, to the anaesthetic, but are in fact just related to the process of labour and delivery. Uh, and the sort of old fashioned term, I don't know if it's still used, is uh, obstetric palsy. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so that's interesting. So, so in fact, you know, the, the, you know, the things that we do actually don't, don't cause most of these um, neurological problems, but obviously uh, we are consulted. Usually, we're usually the very first early people, on, aren't yeah, we? yeah. We're usually yeah. very early on um, uh, to evaluate them, and and that's what we want to be uh, to happen because there are a few rare, devastating things which need to be picked up early and treated early, and so that's why we want to want to be notified if anyone notices anything of concern. Uh, but most of the time, it's in fact nothing uh, like that. It's it's, uh, it's one of these obstetric issues. So. <clears throat> I thought uh, while everyone's still fresh, before we lose all our listeners, uh, we should probably discuss some boring sort of anatomy and terms. Maybe just to discuss the, uh, how nerves get damaged and what the mechanism and um, mechanism of damage to a nerve is, or the different ways that they can get damaged, and then um, you know, how, how we sort of sort of classify their severity and and um, and uh, the, explain the symptoms. Hmm. 
uh, and this is also discussed in the paper that we're talking about. So <clears throat> I've just written down some notes. So the so it's not sort of rocket science. If, uh, we don't all have, you don't have to be a, a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist. <laughs> so uh, Graham's making funny faces at me. So, so nerves can get damaged by transection. Uh, transection meaning just being cut in half. Uh, they can get stretched or compressed. So if, obviously if you stretch a nerve or you compress it for a long period of time, that will, can uh, damage it at the microscopic level. And ischemia, so anything that sort of cuts off the blood supply to a nerve, like sitting on it for six hours, um, or putting a uh, retractor against it and uh, push, pulling harder, for six hours and stopping any blood flowing through the nerve that will damage it. Uh, <clears throat> and then more rare things like injecting toxic uh, chemicals into them mm. uh, can damage them as well. That's pretty rare, but you can, you, uh, obviously there have been cases of things like that. <clears throat> and so what happens to a nerve when it gets damaged? So, uh, I mean, it depends upon where the level of the damage is. Uh, a nerve that's transected without supportive um, myelin type and other external supportive structures is going to die yep. and it won't regenerate but sometimes when the uh, the supportive structures are actually intact it can regenerate and yeah. it just depends upon the nature of the initial injury as to how long it takes to regenerate yeah that's right so if you cut a nerve you cut a nerve in half and then you don't put the ends back together uh, it's basically that's it it can yeah. never regenerate um, but if you just say, for example, compress a nerve with a retractor or something, um, so it gets ischemic and then um, the, the axons die because they haven't had any blood supply for a couple of hours, uh, but the underlying structures are all still there, the nerve can regrow down the down the um, down those um, channels, channels, yeah, yeah. or pathways. Yeah. Um, they do grow slowly, so it can take weeks to months for it, for mm. them to sort of regrow, and then um, you can have full recovery, can't you? So. And then you can also have even lesser degree where, where uh, you, the nerve gets an insult where it just loses its myelin, but actually the axons and things don't die, and so uh, that's a very mild, um, a milder injury in, uh, as well. And then obviously when the, as the nerve recovers from whatever insult it's faced, it, the function comes back as well. So, so those are the sort of. Um, oh, sorry. So <laughs> sorry about the additional sounds. <laughs> we might just pause for a second. Okay, Graham's back online. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, and so we've just talk, finished talking about the uh, damage, uh, the, the, the way nerves get damaged. And, get, and of course, uh, then the symptoms that the um, patient displays depends on uh, what that nerve does, doesn't it? So what are the sort of three things that um, we can notice? So obviously motor function, <clears throat> yep. sensory function, or autonomic function. Yeah, that's right. Those three things can be altered uh, as a result of the injury to the nerve. Yeah, so people can get uh, numbness, uh, sometimes they can get pain as well from sensory nerves, so um, the nerve's not working properly or it's damaged, it sort of releases substances which, which sort of create pain and um, motor, so if it's a nerve that's supposed to tell a muscle to move then you know the classic one is foot drop, mm -hmm. um, where, the, where you can't lift your toes and so your foot, you keep tripping over. Um, and then autonomic, that's sort of, uh, that's usually uh, more central sort of um, damage to nerves, so a bit more of a serious sign. But say, for example, you, you can't go to the toilet where your bowel and bladder function and things, isn't it? Mm. So we're talking mainly about sort of uh, the lower half of the body. 
But yeah. it can be localised as well, issues like uh, vasodilation yeah, that's true. at the skin and uh, loss of things like uh, sweating Yep, yep, the skin. you're right. Yeah, so you do, you can, if you're uh, very um, astute at examining someone, you can see whether they've got, the hairs can stand up and uh, mm. whether they can sweat. Um, so, All right, so that's pretty, uh, that's pretty dry. Um, very. It was Father's Day last <coughs> weekend, uh, Roger. Yep. Did you hear any good dad jokes? Uh, do you know what really gets on my nerves? I know. Myelin. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, do you hear about the 50-year-old bloke who went to the doctor? No. He kept uh, complaining about he, he, you know, felt he was pregnant. He thought he was going to have a baby. And the doctor said, don't worry, mate. He's just having a midwife crisis. <laughs> okay. On that note, we better move on. Uh, so <clears throat> I thought what we would talk about now, now we'll talk about how nerves get injured is um, the obstetric palsies um, because they are the most common cause of these um, these complaints that women notice. Mm -hmm. um, I've already mentioned that I think it's 0.5 to 1% in some studies. Um, and the, the studies that have looked at this, the, the risk factors include um, prolonged second stage, so that's where the baby's head is in the, in the pelvis sort of stretching and pushing on structures for a long time. Uh, positioning. So especially uh, when patients are positioned in things like the you know, exaggerated lithotomy or their, their uh, hips are flexed for a long period of time. Uh, and I was going to say, so what's one of the other things? So, so there, probably isn't, there is an association, is, isn't there, with um, central neuraxial yeah, so geez, your anesthesia yeah, for probably these procedures? Yeah, probably an indirect effect is that if you have an epidural uh, or a spinal on board and so you have, you're comfortable, um, you don't realise that someone's stretching your nerve and you don't tell them to stop or you don't move or mm. change position. So it's not really a direct result of the, uh, the epidural or the spinal drugs themselves per se or the injection. It's just, uh, I like to think of it as like, you know, if you're lying on your sciatic nerve, after about 10 minutes you get a numb leg and you mm. get pins and needles in your leg and so you roll over and, and let the blood get back into it again because, you know, you, you're protecting the nerve. But if you can't feel anything in your lower half of your body, you don't realise you're doing that, that that your nerve is being damaged and so therefore I guess that is a predisposing effect as well. Yes. And there is this condition, I don't know if we'll talk about it a little bit later, where it's, uh, you definitely see people who have had caesareans and they complain that they have a, um, a numb sacrococcygeal area and I'm sure that that is the same sort of mechanism. Mm. Um, I saw someone uh, only two weeks ago who, who mentioned that. Yeah. It's just slightly numb and you know, once again it's, it's probably just one of those explanations. <coughs> um, so the median duration of these uh, obstetric type palsies is um, six weeks to two months and they almost always resolve. So uh, probably should explain a little bit more, shouldn't we, about the, the prolonged second stage and why that's a risk factor. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to do that or me? Have a crack. Well, you're putting me on the you're spot. Jo you're joking. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, um, stretch or pressure on nerves in the pelvis may lead to those structural changes to supporting, sorry, supporting structures of nerves yeah. as they course through the pelvis, which includes the um, sciatic nerve, typically, uh, and branches yep. thereof. Mm. 
Yeah, so it's exactly man, right. Man, that, like a really, uh, I should be able to rattle this off, shouldn't I? Um, being a, uh, a paid obstetric anaesthetist. <laughs> but, uh, That's right. I had to read that right up on this as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so uh, yeah. Basically, there's a, a lot of the nerve, um, the nervous innervation of the lower limbs passes through the inside of the pelvic brim, and obviously, um, that that whole area gets stretched, and also um, at times even the the uh, fetus's head may even directly push on um, on the nerves themselves, you know, which can also impede blood flow through those nerves for a long period of time, causing you know ischemic damage. So, mm. so that's basically the, the main mechanism. I mean, uh, we sometimes see post cesarean section or post laparotomy retractor associated effects on structures like the femoral nerve. Yep. So I was just going to the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh yeah so actually so in this paper that we we're um, referring to the, by Wong and now um, the most common examples of these obstetric palsies are the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve of the thigh yes because um, that passes it just seems to be uh, anatomically prone to getting stretched and compressed and the femoral nerve too and, the, and they think that the there's an area of vulnerability with the femoral nerve where it passes through the inguinal ligament mm-hmm. I mean, even just if positioning someone's legs in the lithotomy or um, a lot of things that we do with retractors and things and during surgery um, all of those things or just flexing the hip at a, yes. an acute angle stretches the nerve mm. uh, and then but the, but also well described foot drop which can which can affect the uh, motor innovation of the of the ankle um, dorsiflexion but that can actually occur either in the pelvis or even further down like on against the fibula yes uh, so anywhere along the along the, the root of those nerves can get um, can can cause that syndrome and sciatic nerve obturator nerve anything basically mm. um, but those are the... so we've gone through those so usually if the, if a patient has a sensory deficit uh, it appears to be unrelated to it doesn't have not associated with some signs of infection or fever or pain in the back or anything like that it makes you a bit more worried about something more central then most of these are just you just watch them Mm. And um, perhaps refer them to a neurologist for follow-up if you if um, if you want a sort of um, a bit more uh, of an, another opinion. Yeah. Shall we talk about the, the the much rarer complications which can be directly attributable to anaesthetic um, practice or anaesthetic procedures? Yeah, I'll just say uh, sometimes the neurologists are able to do well. The neurologists often ask for neuroimaging before they see them. Yep. In for example, an MRI. But sometimes neurologists are able to do nerve conduction studies to confirm yes. uh, the level um, and likely, therefore, confirm the likely etiology of the yeah, that's uh, right. And, but, uh, neurological deficit. <coughs> and I, I'd like to say I did know this, and I think I probably did in a previous life. But just reading through this paper, that you do have to wait. I think it's three weeks or something before you can do a uh, EMG. Is that right? That's EMG. Study because it takes a lot of uh, a few weeks for the myelin to degenerate and for changes to occur. So it's um, it's not something that you need to do in a hurry anyway because they can't actually do it for three or four weeks. And, and sometimes the neurological deficits aren't amenable to those investigations either because of the point at which the problem lies. It's um, dangerous to put needles in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. To All do right. those studies. <clears throat> so I've written out a, the so the things that we can. Uh, directly attribute to the you know, nerve, neurological deficits or injuries that we can directly attribute to anaesthesia. First point is that they're extremely rare, but that can include 
um, direct trauma. Mm -hmm. So we can actually stick needles or um, uh, yeah, needles usually into neurological you know, nerves or neurological structures. The classic one is um, that has been described, although it's pretty rare, is sticking into the conus med medullaris, which yes. is the bottom of the spinal cord, yes. which is supposed to in, uh, finish at L1. That's why we do spinal and epidurals at L3, 4. In adults, yeah. In adults, yep. yeah. Uh, but obviously that uh, varies amongst individuals, and there are definitely uh, cases of confirmed uh, damage to the, to the structure by you know, obviously people doing injections or sticking needles into them mm. into it. Mm. Um, so the, the message there, I guess, is uh, if you're planning on putting a needle f into the CSF, make sure that you've got it at L3, 4 or lower. And if at any stage when you're doing some sort of neuraxial uh, injection, you know, an epidural or a spinal, um, if you get pain, if the patient experiences what appears to be significant pain, don't advance the needle and definitely don't inject anything. So just withdraw and try and do uh, try and go somewhere else or abandon what you're doing. Or wait and see if the pain or, yeah, you know, right. abnormal sensation resolved, in which yeah. case it may be okay. And it's all for, it's easy to say that, isn't it? But mm. sometimes people get discomfort because you just haven't put um, lignocaine into their um, uh, into their back properly, mm. and so you're not actually anywhere near their um, central neuraxium. It's just pain from from uh, you haven't anaesthetized their. Uh, into spinous ligament properly. Yes. So it's hard. It sometimes is a little bit yeah. um, subjective. Yeah. Oh, there is a. I was going to say there is a study that <coughs> I read once that said that we're particularly uh, unreliable at um, accurately detecting. This is anaesthetists, a group of anaesthetists, who are yeah. unreliable at detecting the level at which they were placing blocks. That a third of the time we're right, and we're um, placing the block at the L3, L4 level, yeah. and then 50% of the time we're one level higher, and 50% of the time we're a level lower. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Mm. I mean, on paper, all my epidurals are L3, 4, but I'm sure that um, just having a feel of someone's back is not that accurate. Mm. <clears throat> um, and when people have, um, you know, high BMI... Toffee is line. <laughs> yeah, when people have a high BMI or they have um, edema, you know, as they, well, they get with pregnancy, with lots of fluid in their, in their subcutaneous tissues and things, sometimes it's quite hard to feel their, um, their anatomy. Yeah. And so it's not... Un Unexpected, I think that there's it's it's inaccurate. We don't have um, II, for example, like um, pain specialists who are doing injections in the back to sort of or um, back surgeons and things before, uh, to double check where we're at. Yep. Um, I see a lot of super morbidly obese women. So BMI is greater than 50 or overall body weight greater than 140 kilos in clinic, and I'm have got in the habit of using uh, lumbar spine ultrasound. Yep. in order just to reassure myself, particularly in the patients where they don't have great palpable bony landmarks, um, that uh, our equipment's going to be long enough. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 that's not the reason I do it. But uh, sometimes I'm alarmed at the distance from the skin to um, the epidural space estimated yep. using uh, ultrasound in those women. Yeah, so in women like that, like I know uh, it's, it's different if they come to theatre and you're planning on doing a spinal because you want to, you want to do a spinal anaesthesia. But if I go down to labour, for example, and I'm just and they just need pain relief and labour, uh, I must admit I very rarely do a CSE now because I know that um, it's possible that I can get the level wrong and then I might be putting the spinal needle in mm. to some structure a bit higher than I expected. So I'll often just do an epidural, which obviously you can put in at any level of the spine. Um, safely because yes. you're not planning on going into the uh, into the CSF and any further so mm. and often you know 
And sometimes in those patients, the uh, L1, 2, L2, 3 is actually a bit easier to feel and a bit easier to place. Uh, yes. Epidural. Oh, definitely in the back, the, the lumbar lordosis at that level is yeah. usually more amenable. Um, All right. That's good. Uh, well, so, what have, so some we of got, the. We got off topic, I think. Well, no, I think it's still important. Mm. So, unintended. So, the, another thing that's just extremely rare, but unintended substances. Uh, or or injections into unintended places. So the unintended substances, this is extremely rare, but I think there's a few fairly well-known case reports. You know, there's that case from New South Wales a few years ago, Graham, mm-hmm. where the um, unsuspecting anaesthetist accidentally injected clear a clear chlorhexidine solution instead of water when they were doing an epidural. And uh, most of us all um, shake our heads and grimace because we know that's a systems failure. You know, a toxic substance like that should not look like saline. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I think that um, that's one of the reasons why we're moving towards using swabs rather than um, than um, solutions for for cleaning the skin. Uh, any she, comments? She was uh, that, that lady, uh, as far as I'm aware, was left with severe chronic adhesive arachnoiditis <coughs> and has significant neurological. Injury. Yeah. So it sounds like um, chlorhexidine is a very neurotoxic substance, and certainly if you inject like a large volume of something like that into someone's neuraxium, that is mm-hmm. bad. Um, as I imagine it would be with uh, a number of other uh, chemicals and things. So that's a pretty sad and um, depressing story. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, that sort of thing will never happen to anyone, anyone um, else. But it's a definite reason to be very, very, uh, you know, careful in preparation for placing um, central neuraxial yep. blocks. I must say, it's only been in recent times that we've started moving towards uh, using these this, uh, sort of swabs where you clean the back with the swab. Uh, but now I feel uncomfortable using the solution because mm. <laughs> I just know how much safer it is to use a swab. There's no chance of a mix-up. Yeah. <clears throat> there have been some cases where um, people have done neuraxial epidural injections and the and the fluid that they thought was going to the epidural space has been collecting subdurally and it's actually sort of ballooned out and pressed on neurological structures and cortis ischemia. I've never heard of that until I read this paper though. It, it sounds uh, plausible. Yeah. yeah. So I think the arachnoid matter gets moved, um, what's the word, towards the nerves within the um, subarachnoid space and, yep. and somehow interferes with um, blood supply and uh, leads to ischemic nerve injury. Yeah. So I think that's pretty rare. There's a there's a syndrome, transient neurological syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, where um, not in obstetric patients, surprisingly, but I think it's in other patient groups having elective surgery. Um, uh, concentrated lignocaine or lidocaine, if you're American, solution was it five percent? Yes. Uh, injected into the CSF was used for sort of short spinal anesthesia type procedures, and that led to um, some transient neurological changes including um, discomfort and pain in the lower body mm. uh, so it's thought to be like mildly neurotoxic but not in a reversible way just yeah I remember it having manner. a duration of say 24 to 48 hours yeah uh, so and but it's still a bit contentious as to whether it's a local anesthetic effect yeah or a, a toxicity effect yeah and it's certainly I read that it, that um, there, it doesn't seem to be true in obstetric patients who have had um, uh, you know, 5% lidocaine used for, for obstetric surgery. So maybe it's something, maybe it's a bit of a red herring and it's something relating to uh, positioning or uh, some other 
Yeah. You know, it's about, I mean, we've got 4% lignocaine on the No one appears to <laughs> use, no one uses this uh, solution in intrathecally anymore. Mm. We might even have some 10% that we... Um, we use that for topicalising airways. Yeah. airways. yeah. All right. Um, so the, what are the big things, the big scary um, catastrophes yeah, that, so we're, that we're really trying to find out about? Things that need... Um, that need identification early and uh, treatment early to try and prevent any sort of serious long-term neurological catastrophes. Yeah, so the reason we're interested in um, knowing about patients with neurological symptoms that uh, persist beyond a reasonable time period is we want to make sure they don't have problems like epidural hematoma, epidural abscess, other problems, infection, meningitis, yep. damage to uh, vessels, um, that we can identify in a timely manner, so quite an um, uh, immediate or priority time manner so we can do something about it. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. So these are complications that are extremely rare, but, you know, a big hematoma, so if you mm. have like a bleeding, uh, something that starts to bleed and causes a large collection in the epidural space, which then leads to pressure on the... Uh, the nervous structures are surrounding it, including the spinal cord and the um, conus, yeah, the cora equina, mm-hmm. um, can lead to if you know, if, the, if that isn't um, relieved, usually surgically by um, releasing the pressure, um, then that can lead to irreversible sort of neurological damage to those structures. Yeah, and that involves yeah. a, a laminectomy as the surgical procedure. Yeah, right. I understand. Um, so that can be either a hematoma or an abscess, can't it? So, but they sort of present mm-hmm. slightly differently. So obviously the hematoma can happen quite fairly quickly uh, and it's not usually associated with like signs of infection because it's not an infection. Um, and the abscesses are the sort of more delayed, aren't they? So somehow during the uh, neuraxial procedure, presumably some bacteria have made their way into the body uh, and they have then proliferated and caused this uh, infection, which uh, leads to an abscess. So that can, they can present a bit late, so they're, they're a classic one where, which gets missed, aren't they? Mm. Uh, there was a little upsurge in the uh, incidence of dual hematoma, I understand, around the time when the low molecular weight heparins were introduced. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. Um, uh, not sure if it was in obstetric populations, no. but I think prob- it was probably people who were getting um, uh, epidurals for um, pain relief after abdominal surgery and things. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons where you take particular precautions with respect to timing of um, insertion and removal of uh, epidurals around the time of uh, low molecular weight or even um, low mole- uh, usual molecular weight yeah, heparin. Yeah, normal heparin, yep. mm. unfractionated, heparin. unfractionated and, heparin. And it's also why we're a bit anal or painful about um, platelet counts in some patients' populations. So uh, this is another, it could be a whole podcast about what is a safe platelet count uh, to do a labor epidural. But um, we get a bit nervous about anyone who we think might have a tendency towards uh, co- some sort of coagulopathy and doesn't, uh, you know, can't, um, hasn't got normal hemostasis because we worry about this rare, very rare complication. Yeah. We won't stray off into epidural, um, epidurals and platelet counts. No. What are the sort of uh, warning signs that um, usually indicate that someone might have an epidural hematoma or? Obsess and that needs urgent uh, imaging with an MRI and consultation with the, yeah, perhaps a neurosurgeon or someone. Yeah, so I think uh, you know evaluation of patients who've got persisting neurological deficits is important. Um, on history, in particular, issues like pain, 
Yep. Uh, so back pain especially. Yep. Yep. S- systemic symptoms like fever. Yep. Sweats. Yep. Uh, on examination or other pe- people's reports of problems like localized uh, redness. Yep. A pussy discharge. Um, and I get more nervous if uh, if it's a if there's a significant motor component. Yes. Uh, whereas if it's just purely so I've got a numb patch on my leg, I think. Uh, Autonomic or motor deficits are a bit more of a red flag as well, aren't they? So if the patient's having trouble passing urine or um, mobilising or uh, you know those sorts of things, but that can that can be difficult, isn't it? You know, mm. Passing you know like bowel and bladder function is often a, uh, abnormal after you've had um, surgery or a baby. Um, so you know you're having opioids that bungs you up. Um, you've had um, intrathecal morphine and various other things and a, and a baby goes through the birth canal so that can sometimes impair um, uh, going to the toilet in, in the urinary manner. Yeah, so, perineal trauma. Yeah, so that's diff- mm. that is not necessarily, uh, it's just part of the big picture. Mm. Um, so yeah, so basically those are the things you should worry about. Uh, and if anyone, basically I have a low threshold. If I think yeah. that there's a, a chance that they could have a epidural hematoma or abscess, um, then you basically need to do an MRI and get them exclude that's that serious complication yeah an urgent MRI um, which is easy if you've got a ready access to an MRI and you're in the developed world mm. <laughs> but if you live in whoop whoop or uh, uh, economically constrained environment that's not necessarily uh, as easy um, all right I don't know if I've seen anything else so back pain that's right so so uh, how common is back pain after childbirth very very common yeah, 30 to 50% of yep. parturients have back pain after childbirth. Um, this has been debated, but I've been, I think that the answer's been put to bed because there have been some very large randomised controlled trials where women were randomised to get an epidural or not, so they had something done to their back by an anaesthetist and they didn't, and the incidence of a low, lower um, back pain or those, those sorts of symptoms uh, was exactly the same in both arms. Uh, I think it was at six weeks and six months. So it's still a very common question to be asked by women. That's right. Before yeah. an epidural, almost as yep. common as do you do you charge yeah. a gap? That is. <laughs> yeah. So will I? So especially if they already have back pain, mm. so they want to know is this going to make my back pain worse, or they say I had back pain in the past, am I going to get back pain after you've? Or sometimes you see a woman who comes back and says uh, I had a epidural during my last pregnancy and I had back pain for two months. Um, you know, you guys going to cause that again? Yeah. You know? mm. So it's just a misunderstanding. I think the the changes of the uh, of pregnancy with relaxin and all those hormones and the the change in the um, in the pelvis and the lower spine that occur with Did childbirth and pregnancy predispose uh, these musculoskeletal sort of back pain syndromes. Yep. Changes of centre of gravity and yeah. postural adjustments in order to uh, support a gravid yep. uterus within the abdomen. Yep, that's right. Mm. But you don't want to. So I guess, but you don't want to blow off someone who's uh, complaining of severe back pain, and uh, but then also has other worrying signs, mm. like a fever or it's, you know, it's, the pain is really out of kill, out of um, what's the word? What's the phrase? Dis- of, disproportionate. Disproportionate for uh, what you'd expect. Yeah, and then you need to sort of go and evaluate them. Something mean unfractionated heparin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Word finding. <laughs> yeah, my brain no work properly. No. <clears throat> 
I told my friends a joke about birth complications, but no one laughed. <laughs> Must have come out wrong. Or <laughs> 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 right, I might wrap it up there. Thanks, Graham. Oh, uh, thanks, Roger. <laughs>